Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything, that you could possibly think of has its own history, like banjos, radishes and crying. Oh, I think we've done the history of tears, haven't we? Is crying the same as tears? It probably is the same as tears, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. But uh, do, do you play a banjo? I can play the banjo. Yes, yeah, five well, may- string. Maybe we should have. Uh, maybe we should do the history of the banjo and have you play on it. Oh well, maybe we'll give that a flash. <laughs> or we could do trees, fleas, and pleas. That's uh, pleas as in begging. Uh, uh, or the sneeze, Belize, a country of Belize, uh, and pleas as in. Uh, politeness asking so i think we could do i think the sneeze would be excellent wouldn't it the sneeze would all be about <laughs> contagion yes. uh, and we've done fleas however we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them explaining pretty carefully indeed how those histories link together in unexpected ways who knew for example that the history of volcanoes is in fact all about world-changing volcanic eruptions that have shaped human history like for example the eruption of the Okmok volcano in 43 BC which possibly led not only to the fall of the Roman Republic but also to the rise of the Roman Empire also munches the scream literary depictions via Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and Victorian disaster narratives it's also about the volcanic eruption of Krakatoa in 1883 and the first global media event in history. Wow, who Mm. knew? Or who knew that the history of snails, this was one one of my favourite, favourite ones. Uh, I I always say that, but this really is. I love the history of snails. It was so extraordinary, so you should go and check it out. History of snails is, in fact, all about symbols of resistance in occupied France during the Second World War. It's the history of snail collecting, and get this, snails in underwear and handbags and fighting giant snails. You will never think about snails the same way again. Absolutely guaranteed. <laughs> if you've ever thought about snails before, that is. Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah, that was, it was a great one. Uh, let me introduce my fellow presenter. If history were an English summer storm, and I'm talking full-on howling wind, ankle-deep mud, miserable dampness with water trickling down your neck, this man would be the smug camper, cosied up with his perfectly <laughs> set-up tent, warm with a cup of tea, a jam sandwich, even his socks would be dry, as he sat there observing the storm from his fancy tent window and jotting down notes as his fellow campers struggled with the elements of the past. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hello, James. <laughs> Thank you, sir. I am the exact opposite of that smug camper. <laughs> I am so unprepared. Nothing. I carry nothing with me. Uh, eat out all the time. Don't even have a way of making a hot drink. However, you may well be wondering who is that unattributed voice so ably helping Daybell co-pilot this very episode. Well, let's just say that if he were a tent-related historian, he'd only be the grandest, most pavilion-like tent in the world. A veritable marquee or big-top circus tent so noble and ostentatious, capacious and entertaining are his historical powers. Rather like the tents in the field of the cloth of gold, this sprightly and braggadocious of historians is more than a match from any other awning in the historical vicinity. Yes, you've guessed it. It's the famous historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. Hmm. Hello, everyone. Um, we're doing tents. We're doing this is the start of a few summer themed podcasts, uh, which is which is very exciting. Are you much of a tent? Um, are you much of a camper? 
Hell no. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. I literally don't sleep a wink. I, um, I took the girl. I usually have to. I usually get overexcited and drink heavily as well. And so I, w- I wake up hungover, having not had any sleep. Oh. I, I can't go. I can't cope with it at all. Then I have to have you know a week at home recovering. I, I'm a fair um, weather camper. I took the girls camping a couple of weekends ago. Uh, my wife was away, and every year when she's away at that time, we go off camping uh and get very excited about it this year though it was uh raining most of the time so i put the tent up in the rain and i took the tent down in the rain and then when i brought the tent into the kitchen to try and dry it off in a brainwave uh the the only kind of brainwave that i could have um i i (laughs) put it out um and then realized that i'd actually just scrambled it up in the car full of water and then literally (laughs) literally a gallon of water just oh, sloshed no. out onto the oh, no. onto the floor. Um, it, it was great, <laughs> but we, you know we were then uh, spent the rest of the Sunday uh, mopping up after it. So yes, I, I have a sort of love hate relationship with with tents. Uh, but this was inspired again by our intern, uh, our work experience student from Plimpton Academy, uh, Joanna, who did some really interesting research around te- around tents, looking at Roman tents, looking at tents for entertainment, uh, nomads, tents and the Civil War in America. Um, so it got us sort of thinking in all sorts of different directions, looking at the development of tent, the different de- tents, different uses of tents. I'm going to be talking about two very different examples. One is about Tudor glamping, uh, <laughs> the field of the cloth of gold. Oh, very good, yes. And the other is about the South Pole and Amundsen's uh, famous tent uh, that he pitched and and the, dis- and the search for his tent. Uh, I found an extraordinary article which was basically trying to calculate where it would be uh, hmm. today uh, and the fact that it is lost. So, so there we are. <laughs> uh, it, uh, very good. Where would you go with your tents, Sam? Um, well, I, I, um, my first thought was the Occupy movement. Um, do you remember that? So uh, maybe t- eight, nine years ago, seven, eight years ago, mm. uh, and um, the the I remember going up to London and there being a huge amount of tents pitched outside um, St Paul's Cathedral, and then. A, a, a sort of spread spread west and then within a couple of weeks there were tents all over um the cathedral green in exeter and uh that was all to do you know the occupy movement was a um it was kind of difficult to pin down i remember the slogan being we are the the 99% or the 90% uh, but broadly it was to do with democracy and representation but it did make me think about the tent as a symbol of protest Oh, um, nice. Yeah, uh, and th- there is a whole range of history there. So rather than it being kind of a, co- a cosy sign of summer here and everyone going festivaling, actually it being a, pro- a, 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 a sign, a symbol of a problem, a problem in society. And you, you particularly get that if you see these... Uh, if you see tents pitched in in unusual places in the middle of cities, whether it's outside St Paul's or whether it's hidden down an alleyway, um, providing a little bit of shelter to someone who is homeless. Um, so it made me think about that. And then I thought about my experiences of... Um, we recreated the first ever voyage down the Grand Canyon for the BBC called Operation Grand Canyon. Um, and we took three replica boats um, uh, down down the river and... 
it was quite extraordinary and as a, a brilliant genius part of it uh, all of the crews and the boats weren't allowed a tent so i, I spent um, two weeks in the middle of arizona in the baking heat and the desert uh, without a tent which i actually quite liked um, because the, the weather was dry and you don't have that nasty tenty smell and you're always fussing with zips and stuff you just go to sleep on the beach um, but um, there was a great deal of ants and uh, scorpions and rattlesnakes around. Um, I came across a wonderful uh, description here. This is from a, um, a load of... Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. American soldiers. This is in April 1943. And they... Um, have just left South Carolina and they're they're heading off to do um, 12 weeks of training uh, in Arizona. Um, so this is obviously preparing them all for uh, getting involved in the Second World War. Um, and what happens is the 302nd Engineer Combat Battalion. Um, and so they arrive in the desert, they start cleaning vegetation, um, making roads, uh, raising, staking their tents, uh, hauling water, digging latrines and rubbish pits, making themselves a proper camp in the desert, learning how to do it. But also, very important part of this was learning to be wary of the creatures that inhabited the areas, the snakes, the lizards, the scorpions and the spiders. And, um, you know, these guys are from South Carolina. They're not used to this kind of environment at all. And then... Um, it's a very entertaining bit here where someone goes, Sarge, Sarge, there's two big rattlesnakes in our tent. And uh, <laughs> um, the, the sergeant withdrew the pipe slowly from the corner of his mouth and turned to face the excited young private. Now, lad, there's been a foul up. I've told those jackasses in supply to issue only one rattlesnake per tent. You go turn in that extra rattler this goddamn minute. I very much enjoyed that little story. But it did make me realise that if you study tents um, and study camping, what you can do by looking at it throughout history is use that to study the changing relationship between humans and the environment. So it's a great way of understanding um, humans connecting with nature, environmentalism, education particularly of of the wilderness, knowledge of animals and the dangers they present and also people's reactions to it. Um, it certainly made me think of a, another description of some British sailors sailing down towards uh, New York. They're in Lake Ticonderoga um, in the 1770s during the American Revolution. Uh, they're from the West Country. They've never been to the States. They've certainly never been to that part of upstate New York. Um, and they camp on, on an island, which is completely 
um, covered in steaks and it totally freaks them out and their diaries are hilarious. So I just saw it as a, um, it's a way in, James, which I haven't had time to explore too much, but it's a way in of uh, exploring the relationship between um, people and the environment. And certainly when I took my kids camping, they were completely freaked out about the potential of spiders getting into their tents. Oh, I can imagine. And didn't you get stung by a scorpion when you were going down the Grand Canyon? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, very sure. <laughs> Terrif- terrifying. Well, I wanted to move us to the 15th, to 1520 uh, and June 1520 and the field of the cloth of gold uh, which is an extraordinary occasion uh, when Henry VIII uh, of the King of England met uh, Francois I uh, King of France um, in an area between around Calais and what you have is the most amazingly grand European festival which was designed to improve relations between these two great rival kingdoms and what you have here is an example of Tudor glamping uh, because you know it's it's an absolutely extraordinary uh, event you have you know the the French king and the Holy Roman Emperor um, they and the and Henry VIII on on the other side they're trying to sort of patch things up they're trying to sort of get on terms but they're all trying to show how grand and powerful they are and this is really interesting because not only for what I'm going to talk about the tents but also the sort of the enormous preparations that need to be put into place in order to put on this elaborate festival you think about the kinds of state occasions that we have nowadays think about all the planning that goes into you know something like the jubilee and the tudors absolutely had this down um so if you think about this henry the eighth is turning up with six thousand members of the nobility the dukes earls marquesses lords bishops knights ladies heralds minstrels servants blah 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 and that is matched by the followers of the french king francois the uh, first so he brings along around six thousand people of his own entourage so you've got an enormous uh, amount of of people there um, you've got ambassadors, you've got people dressed in all their finery, jewels, which we've talked about, you know, so it's really, it's a, it basically, it's a, it's an opportunity to display your wealth and your, and your grandeur. So basically you've got 12,000 very well dressed, um, members of the, uh, English and French elite and their, their entourage, all of whom need to be put up. And how do you do that? Um, well, you do that be with portable uh, accommodation, and this comes in the form of tents. And there were, <laughs> the English brought along 820 tents uh, in order to house this enormous number of people. And the French, they brought around 400 of their of their own. So imagine this, you have something like... Um, you know 12 over 1200 tents and for servants there were a further 2800 tents so you just imagine how i mean that's that's almost four over 4000 tents that are being put up you imagine something like glastonbury where you know you're looking at tiny tents these these would be you know huge opulent tents and there are amazing pictures of this there is a in the Royal Collection Trust, 
there is a, a picture of the field of the cloth of gold and you can see there the really opulent tents that would have been that would have been put up and the cloth of gold comes because they are made or one of them was made of a cloth of gold there is also a temporary palace that has been erected uh for you know for for Henry VIII um not only do you have these these amazing tents but also you've got uh you've got to feed these people you know so how what are the logistics about feeding them um there is a in the in the picture there is a, a picture of a fountain uh there's a picture of wine coming out of the fountain and it is thought that about 200,000 litres of wine an estimated four pints of wine per person a day was to be served to the guests uh, so you know and then just imagine the you know alongside that the amount of food that would be that would be brought uh, for these people you know you've got 12,000 people um, 66,000 litres of beer uh, were were estimated along with all the sort of equipment that you'd need to to brew it uh, and then you've got all the food um the fish fish alone uh there were an estimated 9100 place 7836 whiting uh 5554 soul uh 2,800 crayfish, 700 conga eels, and three porpoises and a dolphin. So that, you know, that's just, uh, that's just astonishing, uh, all of that. And then you've got, you've, alongside the feasting and the drinking, you've then got the sports. So you've got the jousting, you've got all the sort of the tawnies uh, that would have gone on. So this is an extraordinary uh, example. There is the most beautiful um there there are the most beautiful manuscript illustrations of this that survive along with the paintings of the field of cloth of gold if you're anywhere near a tablet or a phone or a computer just google the field of cloth of gold painting um and have a look for a beautiful uh little manuscript uh drawing which is of the elaborate tent and this is a beautiful um, a series of one, two, three, four, five little sort of uh, sort of pointed tents, and then a long uh, tent uh, behind uh, with with flags, with um, with uh, what looked like lions uh, and uh, images uh, on them. You know, really grand in regal regal red, trimmed uh, with gold. Um, and there was a project recently by the the um, historic royal palaces and by a, an architectural historian uh, Alden Gregory who's one of the curators of historic buildings and it was a project around recreating these historic tents and they they put one up at Hampton Court Palace um, it was a project called Portable Palaces, Royal Tents and Timber Lodgings, 1509 to 1603. So it was really sort of getting at the sense of how the monarchy represented itself uh, and travelled around in these in these portable palaces. Because part of it is about how you how you go on tour, on progress, how you meet up at embassies and things like that, where there aren't fixed buildings and you sh you show this this form of opulence. Um, for example, in July 1553, tents were supplied to the 
Tower of London to house extra servants and soldiers needed to guard and attend Lady Jane Grey. Um, they crop up at various points when the monarchs are meeting uh, one another. So there's an example in France in 1513. There's a beautiful a portrait when or painting when Henry VIII and Maximilian I, the Holy Roman Emperor, uh, meet up while on campaign in France. Uh, one side has a rather ornate yellow tent or sort of what looks like a yellow or gold tent uh, with a heraldic shield on it with soldiers outside of it and on the other side is a white tent uh, again with a, with soldiers outside it and a heraldic shield uh, google this up uh, it's it's the it's uh, on, it was on display at Hampton Court Palace uh, it's in the Royal Collection Trust uh, and it's titled The Meeting of Henry VIII and the Emperor Maximilian I. So there we are, Sam. Uh, bling tents and Tudor glamping. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Very, very good. Uh, James, I love that. Um, it also links with what I was going to talk about next. It's, it's where do the tents come from in, in this kind of historical situation? Who makes them? And so with the Field of the Cloth of Gold, you've got an enormous amount of people would be required to make those tents. And I don't know the answer, but I bet they were all sailmakers. I, I am, I'm 90% certain that it would have come from uh, the Royal Dockyards. Uh, and w- w- one of the ways of thinking about this actually is it, is it applied to the the American Civil War, which is a, a really interesting time because it actually helps you understand military industrial relations because the records are so good. Um, and that allows you to then question where things like the Tudor tents came from. Um, so in this case, um, I suppose there's a general point to be made here is that the majority of military industrial relations in historical accounts are to do with maybe arms production and shipbuilding, um, procurement and t- other technologies, um, all of the, the various bits and pieces, boots and clothes and uniform and, and things like that. Um, are not so well covered in historical accounts. So there's a bit more work that needs to be done there. Uh, but tents is a is a is a perfect example of that and where they came from. And if you look into it, certainly with the American Civil War, you find leading military contractors who then start working with established mercantile firms. Um, and there's an enormous production and distribution network which is created to to service uh, the enormous amount of demand. Now, this is particularly interesting because of um, the established mills that were used to make canvas tents and the large numbers of women that worked in them. And by studying this this topic, you get a real sense of the, the, I think, the complexity and the diversity of the economic landscape in America, which is then turned towards um, cha- the war, and when, when the war finally changes everything, like, much like it did in the First World War and the Second World War in Europe and America. But here it's the American Civil War. And they, they went from... Uh, this so the, the the existing industry were making sails for ships and they went from making you know a, an impressive amount of sails for ships to 30 million dollars worth of tents uh, and actually the US army spent as much money on tents as it did on boots 
and shoes. So it's a window into the history of industrialization. It's a window into uh, the employment of large numbers of relatively low paid women. So although this is a period where ship design is changing, they are certainly starting to build more steamships. And if you look at uh, what's going on in the American Civil War, you, it does primarily focus on the remarkable um, innovations, things like the Monitor, the Virginia, um, huge ironclad ships. But actually, and they're steam-driven as well, the, um, th- there were so many sailing ships at the time that one of the largest maritime uh, industries was the creation of sailcloth. It was sailmaking, and it's a particular type of... Um, flexible but very dense canvas that can keep off rain uh, that's required by the armies but also retrain some body heat and the cotton canvas that was used to make sails is absolutely perfect for that um and the 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 enormous amount of women involved in this industry is fascinating so there's one census that was taken so between 1856 and 1860 you've got an export of two and a half million dollars worth of cotton um, canvas, which is exported. And that accounts for uh, over 38% of the value of all American exports of any type of cotton manufacture. So there's a huge, huge industry. And in the majority of the mills, the cotton mills in 1860, it's been worked out that two thirds, at least, of the employees were female. So um, Greenwood's company, New Hartford, Connecticut, you've got 104 male employees, 270 females. Uh, Boston Duck Company, Duck is the name of this canvas, in Palmer, Massachusetts, 168 men, 217 women. The Lawrence Duck Company in Lawrence, Massachusetts, 60 men, 135 women. Uh, The Boudinot Colt in Patterson, New Jersey, 43 men, 109 women. And it just uh, goes figures carry on and carry on and they produced an enormous amount of tents so once the war breaks out the different states uh, commission um, enormous amounts of tents so new york contracts for 5200 t- uh, tents at 13 dollars each as well as 900 wall tents so a different type of tent a much bigger uh, a much bigger one for, for the army's use um, indiana between may and august 1861 they built uh, they sorry they purchased four and a half thousand common tents and over 600 wall tents. Illinois, um, 1861, they've got 7,000 common tents um, and then 700 large tents. So I just thought that whole window into manufacturing linked with armies and the way that women were involved in it and also the way that it uh, tapped into a pre-existing maritime economy. I thought that was all fascinating, James. Oh, I think that's really, really fascinating. Really, really interesting, Sam. And that sort of fabrication of tents sort of links with my final example that I was going to talk about. And I'm going to be talking a little bit about the tent um, that rolled... Amundsen um, used uh, with his team when he went off on his South Pole expedition, and which is the 14th of December uh, 1911, when he the team is the first to come to the South Pole, five weeks or so ahead of the Scott 
uh, expedition uh, which sees Scott and his his team uh, his companions the four companions that were with him dying on their return journey and I'm I'm interested particularly to sort of focus in on on the tent here um, and this was a tent that was erected very near the South Pole uh, sort of near as he he could get it and it was fabricated this is the interesting thing in terms of what you were saying about fabrication this was actually fabric fabricated on board Amundsen's ship the Fram uh, and it was it was produced as a spare just in case the party had to be split up and it was made by a tent designer um, uh, a long-term friend of Amundsen a guy called Dr Frederick Cook uh, who was an American polar explorer and he was famous for having been one of the first people to winter over in Antarctica um, but interestingly stitched into this tent were two little notes uh, from the tent makers uh, one of them wishing the team bon voyage and the other wishing them uh, welcome to 90 degrees so they pitched they pitched this tent um, and one of the things is around because this is a period prior to gps the difficulty they have is actually finding where the pole is um and you know how do you do that and also you know what you would normally use is a is a theodolite as a form of navigation and this wasn't available because it was broken and so what they had to do was rely on a sextant which i know you know all about because it's all about navigation at sea uh the problem is that they're on they're on ice so they're not on on the sea so they're unable to to sort of make that work um uh, because there's no vessel so what they do they have to improvise with a tray filled with mercury uh to allow them to sort of you know work out where it is anyway they fire they 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 pitch the tent they go off they discover the the south pole and then they they leave the tent and in the tent they leave um they leave some letters uh for those following behind uh to if anything happened to them to basically take uh home to norway uh and 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 tell the king that they had discovered the south pole now what happens is that scott and his party 33 days later turn up they sight uh, Amundsen's tent uh, and you know they realise that despite their Herculean efforts uh, to be first to discover the South Pole um, they were not the first uh, to be there and Scott records this in his diary great god this is an awful place and terrible enough for us to have laboured to it without the reward of priority all the daydreams must go it will be a wearisome return and then he observes, uh, uh, we have just arrived at this tent two miles from our camp, therefore one and a half miles from the pole. In the tent we find a record of five Norwegians having been here as follows. Roald Amundsen, Olaf Olafsson, Bjarland, Hilma Hansen, Sver H. Hassel and Oscar Visting. Um, and this is dated the 16th of December uh, 1911 this is the the record of them of them being there the tent is fine a small compact affair supported by a single bamboo a note from amazon which i keep asks me to forward a letter to king hakon 
Um, the following articles have been left in the tent. Three half bags of reindeer containing a miscellaneous assortment of mitts and sleeping socks, very various in description, a sextant, a Norwegian artificial horizon and a hypsometer without balling point thermometers, a sextant and hypsometer of English make. Left a note to say I had visited the tent with companions, Bowers photographing and Wilson sketching. And then we've got the, the letter that... Amundsen left for Scott, which is then found later on when when Scott dies. It's found on his corpse. And it reads, Dear Captain Scott, as you probably are the first to reach this area after us, I will ask you kindly to forward this letter to King Hakon VII. Uh, if you can use any of the articles left in the tent, please do not hesitate to do so. With regards, I wish you a safe return. Yours truly, Roald Amundsen. And as we know, and as I've said already, Scott and the members of his team um, were the last people to see the tent and they died on their return trip. Now what's interesting squirrelling around the internet as you do there is quite a lot of debate about where the tent is now. And I read a really interesting article in uh, a journal uh, that was by uh, somebody called Olaf Arhem and it's called the present location of the tent that Roald Amerson left behind at the South Pole this is an extraordinary uh, piece it's in a journal called Polar Record volume 47 issue 3 uh, July 2011 uh, it's very short but basically what it what they're trying to do is try and determine where the present location of Amundsen's tent is uh, they're looking at the they do this based on the navigation in in 1911 and then they track the flow of the ice since then and then estimate the amount of snow that has then fall in fallen in the intervening period to bury it um, they discuss all of these factors in very sort of you know very um you know laborious detail and they give the location for the tent in December 2011 as 80 degrees 58 53 south 46 degrees 14 east and lying they estimate 17 meters below the present snow surface nobody has seen it uh they 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 say that that there is a degree of uncertainty uh in here around 0.3 uh kilometers so 300 meters um but it's concluded with high certainty that the tent lies between 1.8 and 2.5 kilometres from the South Pole. But of course, nobody has found it. But isn't that amazing? The the idea mm. that that tent still, because of the icy conditions, that tent is probably still there, frozen in the ice. So there That's we are, fantastic. moving, moving yeah. tents. Oh, I'd love to find that. I'd love to find that tent. Guys, I hope you've enjoyed listening to our history of tents. It inspires you to go camping during the summer, but watch out for rattlesnakes. Uh, do please follow me on Twitter. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis. And if you're interested in maritime and naval history, do please listen to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. And you can follow me on Twitter at James Daybell. You can follow the podcast at Unexpected Pod. We are also on Instagram and Facebook, so come and make friends with us there. Check out our website, historiesoftheunexpected.com, for all of our back catalogue of episodes and 
and also for signed books, which make very useful presents for summer reading for anyone that you know. You can also become a patron of Histories of the Unexpected and help us change the way in which people think about the past by simply heading over to patreon.com and our Histories of the Unexpected webpage there. But meanwhile, have a great summer, everyone. Um, If you're listening to this uh, and it's not summer, uh, have a great time and take care and thank you for listening. Bye. Cheerio, guys. Bye-bye.